Welcome to the podcast channel of the East Bay Unity Intergroup of Overeaters Anonymous. The opinions expressed here are those of individual members and do not represent OA as a whole. For more information about our intergroup, please visit our website at eastbayoa.org. I am Judy, recovering compulsive overeater. Um, and as always, nervous about doing this with all the voices, everything from, oh, I don't know whether I'm good enough example for everybody. Um, and then added to that is that it's a tradition week. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry I volunteered on the tradition week because it's harder to make the traditions move smooth, seamlessly into my story, but I will try. Um, uh, and it also helps me to say to you, this is just my story. I don't speak for OA as a whole. Take what you like and leave the rest. If you don't hear something that you needed to hear from me, I sh- have faith that you'll hear it from somebody else when they share later on. So with that, I'll take a breath and say, um, I'm going to spend a bit of time just qualifying, talking about what brought me into these rooms and why I stay. Then I will spend time talking about Tradition 9 and how I interpret it and how the, the literature interprets it. And then with whatever time I have left at the end, I will try to sort of tie it back to what it means to us as individuals, as opposed to, you know, the traditions more focus on, on the groups, um, which is important too. So in any case, I, I really honestly don't know exactly when I came into these rooms, but I'm quite sure it was about 20 years ago. I know that it was soon after my mother died. My mother died in the year 2000. So that was 21 years ago. And so it, it must be around 20 years ago I came into these rooms. Um, I am, a, I guess you'd call it a garden variety overeater, compulsive overeater have been my whole life. I know that my earliest memories have a lot to do with food and how much I enjoyed it. I was, I had a dad who loved eating and um, particularly loved all sorts of international foods and foods from his childhood and all of those kinds of things. And we were sort of eating buddies. He never worried about his weight. He didn't particularly gain weight. He was a big guy and was able to eat like that. And I, I liked eating with him. Um, and I don't remember a lot of angst about that until you know, the restricting started till I got older, first with my mother worrying about, you know, making me worry about I was going to gain weight and I wasn't going to find a guy and I wasn't, all of those things. And then very quickly was internalized, not just coming from my mother, but from the world um, that, you know, I shouldn't be eating like that because I wasn't going to look the way I was supposed to look. And uh, then the dieting began. And that was the pattern that was set that continued forever until I walked into these rooms in my, at some point in my forties. Um, and it will probably sound familiar to other people. It was go on a diet, lose some weight, never quite get to the goal, give up on the diet, fail at it. Um, go back to eating like I ate before, gain all that weight back, gain more was even worse than the way I ate before because I'd go into binge mode after a diet, gain all that weight back plus more, then go through a period of just saying, I don't give up, whatever, Um, uh, eating what I wanted to, sort of plateauing, 
but slowly, slowly, slowly gaining more, eventually going on another diet and the whole thing repeated itself over and over and over again. I tried other solutions that didn't work. Hypnotism, that worked for about six hours, <laughs> made it through one meal and then that didn't work. Uh, various programs are focused on sort of finding my inner voice, only eating the foods that called to me, but uh, way too many foods called to me. I, the most extreme thing I did, which is I have a lot of shame around, was I mortifying was I had liposuction, major, major, major surgery that, um, you know, that somewhat reshaped my body, but didn't keep me from continuing to gain weight and continuing to be crazy around food. Um, and that constant failure left me so demoralized and so filled with self-loathing and shame that I really understood people who were suicidal around this disease, even though I can't say I ever seriously considered suicide. I got it. I understood because, you know, and, and the weird thing is on the surface, I had a really good life already before I walked in these rooms. I was a mom at that time of two wonderful little boys. I was married to a wonderful man who I'm still married to. I had a job that I liked. I mean, there were a lot of things going right in my life, but it was hard for me to appreciate any of it because I was so filled with shame and remorse and feelings of regret, you know, going to bed every night. You know, I've talked about this here before, going to bed every night, hollering at myself about what I'd eaten and how could I be so weak and what did other people think of me and, and how awful and worthless and undeserving of love or of anything good I was as if my inability to control what I ate or what I weighed was proof of my worthlessness. So that's what brought me into these rooms 20 years ago. I would have told you it was just because the diets weren't working and I wanted to find a new diet program, but um, it was the demoralization. And I have to say that this program has actually had a more profound effect on that way of thinking about myself than it has on my weight. I let, let go of weight in these rooms and equally important, I've arrested the weight gain that had been steady and constant since I reached adulthood. And I'd say that's a miracle compared to all the failed diets I went on. But more important has been the way I've come to believe that being a compulsive eater is not a moral issue. And that I'm not a bad, worthless human being because I have this disease or even because I haven't reached that goal weight I set for myself when I walked in the doors 20 years ago. And yes, I still feel shame about that, but um, I've stopped. And, and I can't say that I've stopped hearing the negative voices because they are a part of me. <laughs> I'm, they're a character defect or default that I haven't managed to get rid of. But he in these rooms, I get the tools that help me respond to and quiet those voices. And I, and I have the fellowship in these rooms with others I love, admire, respect, all of you, and you have the disease just like I do. And we've talked a lot in these, this meeting about, you know, the things we say to ourselves that we'd never say to anybody else. And it's important for me to realize I don't look at any of you with disdain or disgust or disrespect. I love you guys. And you share this disease with me. So, um, you're amazing models for me, regardless of where you are in your recovery journey. So that's that brings me to um, 
the part where I'm supposed to talk about the tradition. So I'll change gears a little bit and then maybe see whether I can tie it all back together in the end. Um, tradition nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly to responsible to those they serve. And the spiritual principle behind it relates to structure. Um, so, you know, spent a lot of time reading and rereading this chapter in the 12 and 12 about tradition nine. Um, it starts off sort of joking about tradition nine is the tradition these people adhere to the closest this group has never organized. Um, you know, implying somehow or other that OA meetings are chaotic or whatever. It's not been my experience. None of the meetings I go to feel chaotic. It feels like we have a, a nice sane structure and order and script and whatever, and we play with it periodically. But in any case, drilling down, um, quoting from the chapter, chaos isn't the goal of tradition nine. What this tradition encourages us to do is to remain free as possible, as free as possible from the bureaucracy that tends to form around organizations. And it goes on to talk about spending as little meeting time as possible, electing service officers, voting on issues, organizing events, or making reports. Instead, we concentrate on sharing our experience, strength, and hope with each other and on steady and studying the steps and the traditions. So basically, this first part of the, tra um, the tradition is focusing on keeping our meeting time sacred, on using meetings to share our experience, strength, and hope, and to focus on the primary purpose of carrying our message of recovery based on the spiritual principles. That being said, the other part of the tradition talks about the part that the taking the care of group, taking care of group business, which is also important, which is why we have monthly business meetings, possibly one this afternoon, <laughs> or I mean, this possibly one right after this meeting, because that's our, our supposed monthly business meeting. Um, it's interesting because the different meetings, I know, find different ways of um, structuring the business meeting so that it, um, here we do once a month right after the meeting, um, at the 7 a.m. meetings I go to, we actually stop once a month, 15 minutes early so that the business meeting can, can, so more people can attend it. There's a meeting I attend in France where they, on business meeting uh, weeks, they actually go an extra half hour, but then they put the business meeting right in the middle of the meeting for like 15 minutes in the middle so that everybody can participate. So there's lots of different ways of doing it, but every most- That's 10 minutes, Judy. Perfect. Okay, thanks. Most meetings I know do have some kind of a monthly business meeting. Then, of course, we send representatives to our East Bay intergroup, and they send representatives to Region 2, and Region 2 sends representatives to the World Service Business Meetings. So that's the structure. The part about, you know, it not being organized, they also talk in the chapter about it not being a totally top-down structure, um, talk about directly responsible. These committees are directly responsible to those they serve. It's a more democratic. They said, without an organized power structure in which to operate, no single person or group of people can govern others. No rules can be laid down, no punishments handed out, no orders issued. Our personal and group survival depends on adherence to the principle of the program, principles of the program, not on obedience to any power structure. 
And this overlaps with tradition too, which states our leaders are but trusted servants, they do not govern. Um, it's interesting, there's an example going on right now because um, Intergroup received a memo from World Service trustees about that we're not supposed to be displaying literature in these Zoom meetings, such as the 12 and 12 or the daily readers, because um, it's a violation of copyright and perhaps also maybe taking money away from OA World Service. And a number of us who are involved in intergroup feel like maybe it's misguided and um, that it's not necessarily following the principles of you know, spreading the word if newcomers can't see literature on the screen, et cetera, et cetera. So we're, it's an example of where we're trying to find that balance between, okay, there's representatives who are supposed to be making decisions for us, but we also need to be speaking out about principles that we think might be being violated. And how do we reach out and say, maybe there's a different way of protecting the copyright through a licensing or whatever. So anyhow, that's just an example. And we have those kinds of examples all the time. Who knows where it will end up? But it, um, you know, coming back to the general idea of the principles, there's a temptation in these kinds of situations to say, okay, they can't tell me what to do, or they can't tell us what to do. And you know, if we're really stopping and thinking about the principles, it shouldn't be a they and an us. It's all about us. Um, and so, you know, the hope is that uh, all of us will find some time, whether it's by being an intergroup rep or paying attention to what's going on and, and answering calls for re requests to help with things like this afternoon's 12-step marathon, you know, that, that each one of us will find ways of at some point doing service beyond our immediate meetings. And the reason for that is the same reason for other kinds of service in this program. First is that it keeps, it's what keeps the organization going. You know, we can't do it without members of our each of our meetings stepping up to say, okay, I will help other meetings as well. I will help make decisions. I will help give feedback to the representatives above us or, you know, in a broader scope. Um, so, you know, this organization couldn't wouldn't work unless it was all about giving service. The other piece of it is it's a chance, it helps with our own recovery. And I I know from my own experience that it feels much more, it's much easier to understand how sponsoring or secretarying a meeting so it will happen and we'll get to it, how those things help with our own recovery. It's a little harder sometimes, much harder sometimes to feel like a business meeting or an intergroup meeting is helping with my recovery. But I think it really ties in with the 12 step and the chance to practice the principles of this program and all our affairs, including the kinds of things that most of us have to deal with in the world at large, which is being parts of groups and having to make decisions and having to be respectful to one another. So I will come back to with whatever time I have left to, to looking at what are these principles that that are embodied in this tradition. Um, you, you have five minutes. Okay, let me see how how well I could do this. Um, I had three things jotted down. So one is 
you know, as I said, in the world at large, we have to deal with these kinds of things. I'm a, I happen to be a codependent and I don't consider it necessary. I know there's a separate program for that, but I don't consider it a total outside issue to say that is a part of what underlies my disease. And as a codependent, uh, a lot of this chapter talks about lovingly and clearly speaking up for the traditions. As a codependent speaking up in any situation where I feel like there's it's going to create conflict or whatever is very, very hard for me. But those are the kinds of things that we have to do in the world and learn to do that. I am learning with help from this program to be able to speak up, but to listen to other people's points of view. And the second part of that is to know that once I've spoken up, I, I'm powerless over what the group decides. We cannot force another thing from the, from the chapter, we cannot force our will on the OA group, no matter how right it may seem to us. So it gets back to those first three steps and the ways in which we are powerless. And to the um, serenity prayer that we say at the beginning of this meeting and a lot of other meetings, you know, that um, I do what I can, I do it as lovingly and as articulately as I can, and then I have to let go of the results. Um, and the final piece of this that actually sort of what I'm hoping some people might talk about during their shares today, and that's such so central to me about this program is the thing about balance, finding balance. Um, you know, in this case, in the case of the tradition, it's balance between keeping meetings sacred but attending to business, or balance between autonomy of each meeting um, versus being guided by decisions made by the organization as a whole. It's all about structure, which to me, this program is about finding that structure around my food, but around my life that is clear cut and firm, but gentle. Um, balance between taking action and surrendering. Um, you know, I've talked before about how coming into these rooms, it was so, so hard for me, and I still struggle with this, to make the distinction between powerlessness, acknowledging I'm powerless, and helplessness, you know, and surrendering versus giving up. Um, you know, I was like, yeah, that's what I did every time I failed at a diet. I, I said, I'm powerless. I can't do this. I give up. I just going to go crazy, you know. Um, and, you know, learning, trying to learn in these rooms that surrendering doesn't mean giving up. It means letting go of self-will. It means letting go of trying to make things happen that I am powerless over. And at the same time, finding that balance that we, uh, the serenity prayer talks about, you know, and the, the invitation to you maybe or on, on awakening talks about taking action and more action faith without works is dead, that, that there is this balance between taking action and uh, letting go. And it's a hard one, but it feels like that's what this, this program has helped me do over the years is to try to find more balance in my life between the, the boundaries and the, the, between the, try, the, the action and the letting go. Um, so I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for all sorts of things I've learned in these rooms. I'm grateful for the opportunities to practice all these principles and all my affairs. And I'm grateful for all of you for being on this journey with me. Thanks.